Father, as we come to this text and we see, observe the death of Sarah, and uh, we see how Abraham handled that death, Lord, uh, we can learn a lot of lessons from, from this text. But most of all, Lord, we, what we see here, we see Abraham's hope. It's the same hope that we have. Uh, a hope of another life beyond this life, Lord, of eternal life, that once we believe in you that uh, we, and we're born again, uh, we, we live forever. And, and uh, as we see Abraham handle this situation, this tragic situation, this loss of his wife, we can learn so many lessons, Lord, but again, most of all, uh, we just ask that we're reminded of, of just how much you've done for us through Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. And and uh, his broken body. We just thank you for what he's done. We thank you for your word, and we ask you to uh, just open our eyes and hearts today uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit to, to what you want to teach us. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to be looking in chapter 22. Uh, actually, when we get to chapter 23, we're going to be looking at the death of Sarah, the tragic death of Sarah. And we've, we've kind of grown to know Sarah over the last few months. Uh, we've seen her in this relationship with Abraham as they've made this journey of faith, and, and now we're going to see her die. And death is a terrible thing. Uh, English author uh, Summer S. Magnum once wrote this. He says, death is a very dull, dreary affair. And so my advice is that you have nothing to do with it. Uh, but uh, as we all know and as he knows, uh, uh, we all are going to have something to do with it at some point. The statistics are clear. 100% of those uh, who are born on this earth die. I mean, the only ones who won't die are those who are raptured uh, when the rapture comes, and maybe that's on the horizon. Probably not in my lifetime, maybe in some of your lifetimes, but, but uh, that's our only hope of escaping death. But even though we know the statistics... I mean, the statistics are, are pretty clear. Even though we know the statistics, we live, live as if uh, it's not going to happen to us. It's going to happen to everybody else but us. American novelist uh, William Saravon wrote uh, five days before he died, he said, everyone must die, but I always believe that an exception would be made in my case. And, I, and, and we, we laugh at that. But I really think sometimes we just, we just don't really believe we're going to die. And really, as Christians, we don't die. But our bodies are going to die. And, and, and sooner or later, uh, there aren't any exceptions. Uh, even the great patriarchs died. And, and in the chapter that we're going to be looking at today, uh, Sarah's going to die. And then later on, Abraham's going to die. Uh, they lived a long time, but the inevitable came. And Sarah died at the age of 127 years old. That's pretty good. Hopefully we'll, we'll all live that long. I doubt it, though. Uh, for many people, though, death represents the ultimate defeat. Uh, but it didn't for Abraham. And that's what we're going to see in our lesson today, uh, just how death can be swallowed up in victory. And that's what's going to happen in the case of, of Abraham as, as he grieves the death of his, his wife. Uh, but first of all, we're given some background material that's going to help us out not only in this chapter, but especially when we get to chapter 24. So we've got to finish up chapter uh, 22 in order to, to get what we need to get in chapter 23. So, so let's go to chapter 22 where we left off, and let's pick up in verse number 20. And it says there, uh, after, now it came to pass after these things. Well, after these things was after Abraham had taken 
uh, Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah to make a sacrifice of him. And God had stopped the sacrifice. And God said, on this mountain, one day I will provide. And we talked about this. Uh, Isaac was probably about 33, 34 years old, maybe a little younger than that when, when this, this took place. And now uh, a few years have passed. And, and uh, we're told here, it says, now it came to pass after these things in verse 20, that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahar. Now, Nahar was living still in Chaldea, and it's interesting to figure out how Abraham got word of this. Uh, I think maybe that he was searching. Him and Sarah had make, were making plans to find Isaac a bride. He was 37 years old when Sarah died, and so I guess he was 37 years old when he finally got married. So it was time for him to get married. Uh, he was a mama's boy, and he was living at home, and she was enjoying having him at home, but, but uh, it was time for him to get married. And so I think maybe they had reached out to see what was happening over in, in their hometown. And so, so uh, they get word that uh, Nahar, uh, Abraham's brother, has, and his wife, Michael, had had all of these children. And look at verse number 21. They had Huz, the firstborn, Buzz Lightyear, his brother, actually... The light year is not in my text. Now, if you have the NIV, it might be in there. <laughs> I'm just joking if you have the NIV. I, I, I pick on the NIV. It's a pretty good translation. Maybe. Uh, anyway, Huz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. Uh, Kimuel, uh, the father of Aram. Kessid, Hotso, uh, Pildash, uh, Zitlaf. And Bethuel. And Bethuel, well, here's what we want to look at, begot who? He begot Rebekah. Now, we know all about Rebekah. Most of you know all about Rebekah. If you don't, we're going to learn about Rebekah when we get to chapter number 24. She's going to become Isaac's wife. And that's why we're given this, uh, this genealogy here uh, as we come to chapter 23. It says, These eight Milcah bore to Nahum, Abraham's brother, his concubine, and I don't know why we get this, uh, we'll have to get to heaven to find out why we get this, but anyway, we find out that his concubine, whose name was Ruma, also bore Teba, uh, Gehum, uh, Thahash, and Maacah. So anyway, uh, 60 years, it's been 60 years since Abraham had been in Chaldea, uh, since he had left his family and gone to the promised land. And Probably it had been that long since he had seen any of his family, since he had seen his brother Nahar. But word gets back uh, that Nahar, hey man, his family's really grown, and uh, he's had several sons, and one of his sons, Bethuel, uh, has a, uh, a granddaughter named Rebecca, and she's going to be central to our story a little bit today, but especially when we get to chapter number 24. Now, I no doubt Sarah and Abraham had talked about finding a wife for Isaac, but they didn't want to find a bride in the land of, of Canaan because, you know, it was occupied by Amorites, Hittites, and Philistines, and these were pagan people, and they didn't want the... Actually, their family was pagan too, but maybe weren't quite as pagan as the Amorites and the Hittites and the Philistines. And so they were more than likely looking to find a uh, wife for uh, Isaac uh, in the land of their fathers. Now, and Isaac was born so late. I mean, he was, I mean, they were, in, Abraham was uh, 100 when uh, Isaac was born, and Sarah was 90, and so they were born, she, Isaac was born so late in their life 
that uh, any of Nahor's daughters would have been too old uh, for Isaac, and they would have all been married off probably at that time anyway. And so a granddaughter is going to be the only thing that's going to work, and that's where Rebekah comes into the story. And next week what we're going to see, we're going to see Abraham send his servant Eleazar off to find a bride, and he's going to happen upon uh, a place, and he's going to meet Rebekah, and, and we'll learn about the story later on. Uh, but I don't believe Abraham and Sarah were any, in any hurry to find a bride for Isaac, or they would have already had sent Eleazar off to, to, uh, to look for a bride. And, uh, and so, you know, they both like having him around, but, I mean, he's 37 years old. It's time for him to find a bride. So I have a hunch that maybe one of the reasons that the Lord took Sarah out of this world when he did was to move Abraham into action in order that he would find a bride for Isaac. And uh, as we're going to see uh, when we get to chapter 24, Isaac no doubt was extremely attached to his mother, and when she died, he went into deep mourning. And uh, so that motivated Abraham to go out and find a bride in the land of his father's, uh, and that's what happens. And when we get, if you look at the last verse of chapter 24, you jump ahead there, you see there that when Rebekah became his wife, it says that Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So that was the motivation behind Abraham sending Eliezer off to find this, this bride. Now, even though Sarah and Abraham were procrastinating, I'm sure they were making wedding plans for Isaac uh, when she died. But they weren't in any hurry because I don't think they thought that any, either one of them were going to die anytime soon. I mean, uh, Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90. Uh, I mean, at this point, uh, she's in her 120s. Uh, he's in his 130s. I mean, and so I think they think they're going to live a long, long time. They might be thinking they might even break uh, Methuselah's record for longevity. And so I don't think they expected her to die. But sometimes death comes when we least expected. James, the, that uh, half-brother of Jesus, that very frank prophet, very bluntly put it like this. And he, he says in James chapter 4, he says, come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend uh, a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or do that. Now, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. That doesn't seem like a vapor to me. But I bet you, if when you get to heaven, you ask Sarah, I mean, how, did your life pass by pretty fast? She'll tell you, yeah, it did. It just went by just like that. I mean... I'm almost 50 now, and, and those 50 years have gone by just like that. i got to quit lying in the pulpit. I'm not going to tell you how, what I'm almost, uh, probably most of you know. But those 70 years have passed by really fast. And I'm sure if I live to be 140, I'm going to look back and say, man, those 140 years went by really fast. 
And, and so here's Sarah, and I think the biggest event on her calendar was to see her son get married, and she dies unexpectedly. She doesn't get to see his wedding. She doesn't even get to meet his bride, and that seems sort of sad. Uh, and, and I think a lot of us are like that. Well, a few of us factor in death when we're making our plans, but we never know when we're going to die. I mean, graves is come in all, as someone said, graves come in all sizes. I mean, any of us could die at any moment. And so we shouldn't be making plans for the future without saying to ourselves, unless if the Lord wills, we can make these plans. And, and usually if you're a born-again believer, you're allowing the Lord to, to guide you in your plans. And the Lord's not going to guide you to do something and then, and then kill you or take you out of here. Uh, so if the Lord's giving you your guidance, then then uh, and the, that means that the Lord wills and, and probably you'll see your plans fulfilled. But anyway, she doesn't get to see uh, Abraham, uh, get, I mean, Isaac get married. She dies at the age of uh, 127 years old. It's strange to me sometimes how God takes some people at a, at a certain age. He takes others at another age. I, I, I look at people like D.L. Moody. Uh, who uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, these guys had great ministries. Uh, they both died when they were around 60 years old. And then you see these TV preachers in their 80s still spouting their heresy, and you, and you wonder, you know, Lord, why would you take them when they were 60 at the, in the prime of their ministry and you let these guys just keep going on? Well, well, it doesn't make sense to me, but it does make sense to God. I mean, God has numbered our days, and when our time is up, he's going to take us out of here. Uh, so, uh, here's Sarah and, uh, uh, she's, uh, taken out of here by God in verse number one. Let's look at verse 23, chapter 23, verse number one. Sarah lived a hundred, 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. So for us, you say, well, she lived 127 years old. That's, that, you, know, you sort of expect her to die at that point. But I don't think that Abraham expected her to die. You know, it doesn't matter how old someone is. When they die, it, it, especially if they die in good health, uh, it, it's still a shock to us. I mean, my dad died when he was 95 years old, and, and, but it still was a shock to all of us because he was in such good health. And so... So uh, I believe that was the case for Abraham. I mean, Sarah was doing fine, I believe, and, and they had recent, recently celebrated their 100th wedding anniversary. How about that? Uh, she was the love of his life. She had been on that journey of faith with him for 60 years, and then all of a sudden she dies. And, and, and we've kind of followed them along here for the last uh, several weeks, and, and uh, we've kind of grown to see their relationship and what a great relationship I mean, it had it ups, it had it ups and downs, just like every married couple has. But, but it was a great relationship. And you just can't imagine them being separated. But that separation came. She died, and, and uh, I'm sure Abraham's heart was broken at that point. Look at, look at verse number 2. So Sarah died in Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of the Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. That's what you would expect him to do after all those years together. You know, the last time we left off, Abraham and Sarah were living down in Beersheba, 
And so most commentators believe that at some point earlier, just before she died, they had moved up to Hebron. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, and the reason I don't think so, because in the next chapter, we're going to see when Isaac goes out to meet Rebekah, he's going to meet her at, the, at Beer Laharoi, which is that well where, where Hagar went with, with Ishmael, uh, and it became a little town, uh, a little bit, of several, actually several miles, miles south of Hebron. And, so, and we're also told in Genesis 24 that Isaac, when he comes up to meet Rebekah, he comes up from the south. So I believe Isaac was living in Beersheba when his mother died, and Abraham was in, in Beersheba too. Now, so why is Sarah up in Hebron? Well, we don't know for sure. I don't think they were separated. Uh, she could have gone up there to visit some friends. You know, they had lived there a long time once before, and so she had friends up there. Uh, she could, they could have had a mall up there or something, and she wanted to go up there shopping. Uh, maybe she went up there for vacation because Beersheba is this desert, arid place, a uh, very flat place, and Hebron's up in the mountains. So maybe she went up for a little while to see friends and, 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 and go uh, on a little vacation. And Abraham stayed back to manage the farm. But she was there, and she suddenly died. Now, that scenario makes sense because it says here, if you look again at verse number 3, it says that Abraham came up to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So he wasn't there. He had to come to, up to meet her, to, to mourn for her and to weep for her. Uh, in any case, they were back in the promised land. Even if they were living in Hebron or he was living in Beersheba, whatever, they were, they were living in the promised land. And the promised land represents the perfect will for Abraham and Sarah. So Sarah died in the perfect will of God. You know what? That's the way I want to die. When I die, I want to be exactly where God wants me to be. I don't want to be living outside the will of God when I die. I mean, can you imagine dying and facing the Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord? Can you imagine dying and being in the presence of the Lord and you're out of the will of the Lord? Now, none of us are perfect, but we want to be in God's perfect will when we die. Now, let's look at the next few verses and we'll see Abraham begin to make the funeral arrangements for Sarah. Uh, Verse number, uh, picking up in verse number three. Then Abraham stood up from before his dead, before his dead wife. And he spoke to the sons of Hath, saying, I am a foreigner and a visitor among you. And that's interesting how he saw himself in the promised land. As a foreigner, really the word you could translate, pilgrim. I am a foreigner and a pilgrim among you. Please give me property for a burial place among you that I may bury my dead. Now listen to this phrase here. He says, out of my sight. First of all, to me it seems pretty sad that Abraham, who probably was one of the richest men in the world at that point, didn't even own enough property to bury his wife in, in the promised land. And, and so he's got to make a deal to get it. And, and, and then he says here, he says, I want to bury her out of my sight. Now, what did he mean by that? It's an idiom that they used in the Hebrew to say, no longer in my sight. I mean, and, and he was talking about how sad he was. I mean, for over a hundred years, Sarah was in his sight almost every single day, and now she was gone. 
And so he's, what he's doing now, he's, he's making funeral arrangements. And then uh, we look in verse uh, 5 and 6. Then Abraham, I'm, yeah, 5 and 6. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince, a mighty king, you could translate that, among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. You can pick any graveyard you want and you can bury your, your wife there. And none of us will withhold from you the burial place that you, that you may bury your dead. So Abraham's this well-respected, uh, well-known prince in, in, in the promised land. Everybody knew who he was, so they referred to him as this mighty prince. And, and they tell him, look, you go pick one of our grave sites, and you bury your wife, and, and no matter which one you pick, none of us are going to object. But, but Abraham didn't want to do that. He wanted a place of his own to bury his wife and to bury his family in the future. So, so he wants a burial site, and I think he's picked one out, and we're going to see that beginning in verse number 7. Then Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land and the sons of Heth. And he spoke to them, saying, If it is your wish that I bury my dead out of my sight, and there's that phrase again, hear me, and meet with Ephron, because Ephron owns the place that he had his eyes on, the son of Zorah for me. Then then he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is... At the end of the field, let, let him give it to me uh, at the full price as property for a burial place among you. Now Ephron dwelt among the sons of Heth, at, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the presence of the sons of Heth, also who entered the gate of the city. So they're going to the gate of the city. That's where they did their business. That's where they recorded their deeds. That's where they made their deals. And so they all meet at the gate of the city, and... and uh, He's, and he says, no, my Lord, hear me. I give you, in front of all these people, this field and this cave that, it is, that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you. Bury your dead. So that sounds like a pretty good offer, doesn't it? Well, some people say that what Ephraim was doing here at this point was engaging in uh, what the way the process that the Middle Easterners go through when they make a deal. And pretty much what that process is, is to show you how kind they are to get you to give them a better price. That's the way they operate over there. If you've ever been over there, you know that's the way they operate. But I don't know that that's necessarily the case here. It might be. But uh, because Ephraim sees this great man, and he sees this man weeping, and he sees this man mourning, and I believe he has empathy on him, and, and I think he wants to help him. But who knows? He might have just been bartering for, for a really good price. And they do that over there. When Brenda, when Brenda and I were in Israel, uh, we hired a guide, and he took us to the uh, end of the Palestinian territory, uh, into Bethlehem. And uh, we wanted to see the birthplace of Christ. I don't know why we did that, because there's nothing to it when you see it. I doubt very seriously it is the birthplace of Christ. But, anything on, but anyway, it, on top of where supposedly he had, was born, there is a uh, church built there. And there was a line 
going into that church of at least a thousand people. And I said, look, Brennan, I don't want to see this. He said, oh, don't worry about that. The guy said, don't worry about that. So he turned us over to another guy who had connections there. And that guy took, that guy took us to the front of the line. And there you walk up and you see this big star sitting there. And he says, you can kiss the star now. And I said, I'm not kissing the star. I don't need to kiss the star. And, and, uh, but anyway, when we got done, hey, we, we were just there a few minutes. We got done. I, I said, look, you know, would you, can I give you a tip for getting us to the front of the line? He said, oh, no. He said, you're a brother in Christ. We're, 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 we're uh, friends now. He said, I would never take any money from you. I mean, I, 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 don't, I, don't, you know, I don't want anything from you. I just, just, just thank you for letting me show you the birthplace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he didn't know who he was dealing with. I mean, he was lucky I, I was still being kind. And I said, no, let me give you a tip. And, and he said, well, if you insist, you can give me a tip. And so I pulled out a 20, and I handed him a 20, and he looked at me like, this ain't it. <laughs> so, so I handed, handed him another 20, and, and uh, he just had a big old, I mean, it was worth $40 not waiting in that line. But, but, but uh, it wasn't worth it to see the site, but it was worth $40 not to wait in that line. And he had a big old smile broke out on his face, and so I knew I'd hit the right number. But, but he was showing kindness to me to get me to give him a bigger tip. And I think maybe that's a possibility of what's going on right here. All right. Now, let's look at the next verse. Where do we leave off? Verse number 12. Then Abraham bowed himself down before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will give it, please hear me. I will give you money for the field. I'll give you the full price. Uh, take it from me, and I will bury my dead there. So Abraham wants to pay for this land. He wants to pay for it. Whether Ephraim is just going to give it to him out of kindness or whether Ephraim was dealing with him, Abraham didn't care. He wanted to pay for the land. And there were reasons that he wanted to pay for the land. First of all, he wanted it to be a private burial place. He didn't want to bury his dead in a public burial place, uh, especially a heathen public burial place. So he wanted a private piece of land. Uh, He wanted to control that land in the future. He wanted to, whatever went on that land, uh, he probably would... He's probably turned over in his grave when he sees what's there now. There's a mosque on top of the cave at Machpelah, and, and before that there was a basilica built. And uh, uh, so anyway, uh, he, he didn't control it forever. Uh, one day that'll be his, his land, though. But anyway, he wanted to control that in the future, so, so he wanted to own it. Uh, and the other reason, I think this was the main reason he wanted to pay for it, he didn't want to bury his wife in a plot of land that cost him nothing you know it sort of reminds me of david when david bought the threshing floor of ornan remember he wanted to build the temple there and he wanted to offer burnt sacrifices there and ornan said look i'll give it to you and david said far be it from me that that i would offer burnt offerings on a on on a piece of land that cost me nothing and 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 so you know Abraham wanted to make that sacrifice. He wanted to make that sacrifice for his wife. I think that's who he was thinking of when he was, when he was dealing with Ephraim in this point. All right, Ephraim. Anyway, verse number 14, and we'll finish up the chapter here. And Ephraim answered Ab- Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. 
And he now gives his top prize. What is it between you and me? So bury your dead. You don't have to give me anything. And Abraham listened to Ephraim, and Abraham weighed out the silver for Ephraim, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, his full prize, 400 shekels of silver, currency of the merchants. Uh, and they were all there at the gate. They all saw what he paid him. So the field of Ephraim, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, in the field of the cave, which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who went in at the gate of the city, of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah with his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, before Mamre, which is in, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded to Abraham by the sons of Heth as property for a burial place. So here's Sarah. She's buried, died. She's buried at Machpelah. Abraham would live another 48 years, and then he would be buried in the cave at Machpelah. Now that's a sad story, a really sad story. We, don't, we, we, we really are so far removed from the actual events that it's really hard to have empathy for Abraham, but you've got to be filling for him at this point. It's a really, really sad story. But when you watch his actions, when you watch what he does, what, you, what, what he does henceforth, what he did before this, uh, what he does at her death, uh, you, you can learn some lessons about how to handle the death of a loved one from, from Abraham. And that's what I want to look at here as, as we finish up. The first thing... When we have a loved one die, the first thing we, we do, we have to do, we have to grieve. There's nothing wrong with grieving. I mean, we should grieve. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to weep. But there has to come a time where we quit mourning, where we quit mourning and we trust the Lord and we get on with our lives. See, that's what Abraham did. He, he weeped. For Sarah, He mourned for Sarah, probably as much as any man has ever mourned for his wife. He loved his wife, but he went on with his life. I mean, in the next chapter, we get to the very next chapter, and Abraham's going to set out uh, to do the business that he probably should have done before. He's going to set out to get a wife for Isaac, and he's going to send Eliezer on this mission, and he's going to prepare for Isaac's wedding. So he goes on with his life. He, 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 he looked for a bride for, for Isaac, and then in the next chapter, he looked for a bride for himself. Uh, he, he finds Keturah, and he buries Keturah, and, and he has more children with Keturah. I'm not recommending that necessarily if, you, if your spouse dies, that you go out and immediately find you another spouse. But, but uh, what I am recommending is, is, is that you get on with your life. That's what the Bible recommends, that you get on with your life. Uh, and and, and when, when you lose a loved one. You know, I've known so many Christians, people that at least call themselves Christians, and they lose a loved one. And, and I don't know you ever get over that. I'm not saying you get over it, but they don't get on with their lives. They quit on life. And that shouldn't be so because as Christians, we of all people have hope. We have great hope. 
Uh, we, we, need, we, we, we need to trust in the fact, first of all, that they've gone on to their eternal reward, and if, especially if they're, I mean, only if they're believers, but if they're believers, we should be able to trust that. And people say they're Christians, but I see them and they don't really believe that. If you don't really believe that, then do you, are you really saved? And so, so you know, there, at some point we, we need to let go and we need to get on with our lives. I... Uh, Another lesson that you learn from what Abraham didn't do was uh, what we should do, especially when we get up in years, and that's to make some kind of funeral arrangements before we die so we don't put that burden on on uh, our loved ones when we are dead. And maybe, you know, I mean, he should have had those arrangements made, I think, for Sarah before this. But, but I understand why he hadn't done that. I mean, he was a pilgrim living... In, in a strange land. I don't know until she died, he knew exactly where he wanted to be buried, where he wanted her to be buried, where he wanted his family to be buried. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, he has to deal with this when she's dead. And I've seen this over and over again as a pastor where people are in the midst of their greatest grief and they're, and they're you know, you lose someone who's younger, you're not expecting them to die, uh, then, then, then that's one, another a different story. But, but when we get up in years, I think maybe we should make plans for our funerals and, and uh, have that worked out before we die. Saying that, I haven't made mine yet either. You know, I, I feel sort of like Abraham. I feel like a stranger in Lafayette. I mean, I have great friends. I have my family here, this church. I mean, I have my, my, my blood family here. I mean, I love Lafayette. I'm not putting this in Lafayette. But, you know, I was, I was born into an Air Force family, and we moved all over the place, and I've moved all over the place since then. And I feel sort of like a pilgrim and a stranger, and I don't really know really where I want to be buried. I've got relatives buried all over the country. I could just pick a spot, you know, if I... If, if I want to, but, but really that's something we should deal with. So my wife's probably going to say, you better practice what you preach when we get done here. But none of those are the important lesson. The important lesson that we can learn from Abraham's actions during this tragedy is that when death stri- strikes close to home, we're to fall back on our faith. That's what Abraham did. There's no doubt that's what he did. He fell back on his faith in the Lord. His faith wasn't in, in his marriage. His, and I think this could have been a worse scenario if, if uh, Abraham had died first and left Sarah by herself. Uh, but, but if that had happened, Sarah's faith couldn't be in Abraham. Her faith had to be in the Lord. And that's what Abraham does. He falls back on his faith. And because he did that, Sarah's death was swallowed up in victory. This is actually a victorious situation. Abraham has victory in this situation. How do I know he fell back on his faith? Because of the place where he buried his wife. I mean, he could have buried her a lot of places. He could have buried her down in Gerar. Remember, he owned land in Gerar that Abimelech had given him. He owned a lot of land down in Gerar. Beautiful spot. It would have been a great place to bury your wife and bury your family. Uh, he, I'm sure there was this temptation, this driving temptation, 
to take her on a journey and take her back to the land of his fathers where all those people were buried uh, in Chaldea or in Haran in one of those places where his family was buried. Uh, It certainly would have been a temptation to do that. But by faith, he chose to bury her in the promised land. In the promised land where one day he believed she would walk again. Where one day when he died, he would walk again. He had faith that that one day he would walk uh, in that land again. And it's amazing to me, as rich as Abraham was, that he didn't own any land in the promised land. I mean, he had that little plot down in Beersheba, and he had some land in Gerar, but, but he didn't really own anything in the promised land. Because... He was a pilgrim and a stranger in that land. I mean, he could have bought up Hebron if he had wanted to. He was a a very wealthy man. He could have bought up a lot more land than than that little plot where the cave of Machpelah was. But he didn't buy up anything. And and why didn't he buy up anything? For two reasons. One reason is he owned it all anyway. I mean, he owned it all anyway. It was all his. God had promised him and his descendants that land. One day, you see, as far as you can see, on both ways, all the way up to, to, to Dan, all the way down to Beersheba, all the way to the Mediterranean, all the way to the Jordan and past east of the Jordan, all of that land is yours. All of it is yours and, and, and yours and your descendants. And so he believed God and he was willing to wait for that land. And, and the reason he was is because he had faith. He had faith that God had given him eternal life. Do you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe that you have eternal life? I mean, it changes your perspective when you do. It changes your perspective on everything, especially it changes your perspective on death when you really believe in eternal life. And Abraham believed in the Lord and he believed in eternal life. But he took his faith even one step further. He also believed that there was something better waiting for him than just that land in Israel. Something much greater and much better. Let me, let me show you what he, what he hoped for. Go over to the book of Hebrews, close to the end of the Bible. Go to the book of Hebrews. and we, We're in this chapter of faith, this great chapter of faith, chapter number 11 of Hebrews a little while back. But go back to Hebrews, chapter 11. And read with me there beginning in verse number 8. Verse number 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. To leave out Chaldea, go to the promised land. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise. He didn't buy up any of the land though. He dwelt in it as if it was a foreign country. He knew it wasn't his yet. It was going to be his, his one day in eternity. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and, 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 and Jacob and the heirs of the same promise who were really in his loins. For he waited, here's the kicker here. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That was Abraham's great hope. That's what he, by, by faith, he waited patiently on. And he believed. Here's how he swallowed up death in victory. 
He believed that when Sarah had died, she had gone straight to that city whose foundations, uh, whose foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He believed that. He believed that with all his heart, and he believed that one day he would go there too. And guess what? He's there. He's there as we speak. Now, when he died, he went down into paradise. But then when paradise was emptied out, he went to that city, that new Jerusalem that one day is going to come down from heaven. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that because Jesus knew Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. You knew Abraham, remember? Yeah, he knew Abraham. He knew Moses. And when he met Moses in that burning bush, and Moses saw one like the angel of the Lord, who was the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord spoke to him. You remember what the angel of the Lord said to Moses? And Jesus quoted this when he was arguing with the Sadducees about the resurrection. He said, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not he was, not he will be. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of the living and not the dead. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord in that city whose builder and maker is God. Do you believe that? I believe that. And he believed that. Now, if you're brave enough to venture into the heart of Palestinian territory, Get you a plane ticket, go to Tel Aviv. They won't rent you a car to go down there, so you'll have to get a guide or, or just walk across the border if you're brave enough. You can actually go down to Hebron, and you can see the cave at Machpelah. You can see, you'll see the mosque, but if you can get inside that mosque, uh, the cave is actually there. Uh, they, they call it the Cave of the Patriarchs. And the very place where Abraham, where Sarah was buried, And later on, Abraham was buried. And it's the same place where Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah were buried. Why were they all buried there? They were buried there because Abraham passed his faith down to his children, down to his descendants. And they wanted to be buried in the promised land because that land was their land. And one day they believed that they would be resurrected by faith. They would be resurrected and they would walk that very promised land. You you remember Joseph. Joseph was second in command over all of Egypt when he died. He could have had been buried in one of those pyramids. I mean, he could have been given the greatest burial that's ever been given. I mean, he could have had anything at his burial. But he told, he he made Israel promise that when, when they went into the promised land, when they left Egypt, they would take his bones with them. And they did. They took his bones and they took them down to Shechem. Now, why would he want his bones buried in Shechem? Shechem way north of Jerusalem and Hebron. Why would he want his, it's Nablus, the city of Nablus. Why would he want his bones buried in, in, in the promised land? Because he believed the same thing that Abraham believed. That one day that land would be his. That one day he would physically walk in that land. And he wanted to be resurrected in that land. He wanted to walk in a resurrected body in that land. And not be down in Egypt uh, when he was taken to be with the Lord. So you can can go there today and you can see that spot where they're buried, but they're not there. They're not there. Somewhere around there are their bones more than likely. You find the bones of the patriarch, but you won't find them there because death has swallowed, been swallowed up 
in victory, and they're living in that great city of God. The new Jerusalem that one day is going to come down out of heaven and come to this earth, and then that land will be theirs. We have such a great hope. You know, we need to live like we have a great hope. I think our greatest witness as believers sometimes comes in the way we die. In the way we die, in the way we bury our dead. It's, it's a great witness that we all should have. Because we really, if we really believe, we, we say this flippantly, but we say they've gone to a better place. But if you really believe that, then you really believe that death has been swallowed up in victory. You know, two years ago, in a matter of months, a couple of months, I lost both my mom and dad. But as Vance Hebner says, you haven't lost anything if you know where it is. And I know where my mom and dad are. I mean, their bones are in Montevella, Alabama. That's where their bones are. That's where the gravesite is. But they're not there. When I left that gravesite after their funeral, after my mom's funeral, that last, after we'd buried my dad and then buried my mom, I knew by faith that they weren't there. I knew it. I, mean, I knew it by my spirit. I knew it in my spirit. The spirit of God attested to the fact that your mom and dad now are with me. Don't fret. They're in a city whose builder and maker is God. And though I grieved, I mean, I grieved for my mom and dad. My grief was swallowed up in joy. My grief was swallowed up in joy because their death had been swallowed up in victory. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? The grave doesn't have any victory. The Lord Jesus has the victory. He who believes on me shall never die. The victory that he won for us on the cross when he died and bled for our sins. That's the victory that overcomes death. It overcomes sin and sin is death. And his rec- he was resurrected on the third day to give us life, eternal life. Abraham believed that for a fact. I do too. Do you? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the good news that you have conquered death. That death has been swallowed up in victory. We see that in Sarah. We see that in Abraham. We see that in all the patriarchs. Lord, we see that in anyone who has faith in you through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the blood that was shed for us, the broken, the body that was broken for us, Lord, so that we could be made righteous in your eyes, so that we could have access to that great city that you're the maker and builder of. Father, we just again just thank you for your grace. We thank you for all you're doing in our lives. And Lord, we can be overcomers through any type of death. We just thank you for that victory. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Y'all want to stand and we'll close in a song.
Great day. 